I'm coming to your cities. I recently did an event in New York. It was awesome. I loved bringing real couples up on stage. We had no idea what was going to happen. The crowd loved it. I was sharing real numbers. It was a blast. And I want to do it again. I'm looking to coach couples on stage at my next two live events, one in Philly on June 1st, one in Boston on June 4th. If you and your partner want help connecting over money, you want to solve a big financial challenge you have, please apply at iwt.com slash live coaching. If you and your partner struggle to come up with a shared vision of your rich life, if you have different priorities about spending and saving, if you just can't get on the same page financially, I would love to coach you live on stage in your city. It is free of charge. You can apply at iwt.com slash live coaching. I'll see you in Boston and Philly. Recently, I had an event in New York City. I had hundreds of people come and I brought actual real couples up on stage and did a mini podcast right there in front of everyone. It was awesome. And I'm very pleased to announce that I'm doing two more events. I want to let you know about it before anyone else knows. June 1st, I'm going to be in Philadelphia. June 4th in Boston. If you want tickets, you can get them at iwt.com slash philly and iwt.com slash boston. Between now and May 3rd, you can use the pre-sale code RICHLIFE to get tickets. Again, June 1st, I'll see you in Philly and June 4th in Boston, iwt.com slash philly and iwt.com slash boston. What is the percentage of your portfolio that is in real estate right now? Like 98%, all within just a couple miles of each other. We have all of our eggs in one basket and it makes me feel exposed. The intention is to balance the diversification of our investments. 10 years ago, we were getting our groceries at the food bank. I don't wanna be there again and I don't want my kids to have to be there. I'm not totally convinced that at least right now, it makes the most sense for us to transition the equity in a property into an index fund. I very often tend to ignore the risk altogether. It makes me feel entirely responsible for being the person to clean up messes if they happen, to plan for them, to try to buffer for them. And it's really hard to plan for managing risk with a partner who doesn't see risk. I don't feel like I'm being honored in how we're investing right now. How do you handle your investments if you and your partner think about risk differently? Meet Georgia and James, who both own four properties. Now, I've been accused of hating real estate, but that's not really true. Today's episode is not going to be Ramit hates real estate. I rent by choice in LA. And what I actually tell people is to run the numbers before you buy. Georgia and James have run their numbers. You're going to hear them. They're very confident when they talk about their investments and they've done well. I actually have a lot of respect for how Georgia and James have approached their investment philosophy. They've purchased four properties and taken together, their investments have been very profitable for them. But Georgia is worried that they could lose it all. She knows they aren't diversified since 98% of their portfolio is in real estate and it's all in the same area. And she's right. Real estate is full of risk, especially when you're in the same asset class and same location. 
So this conversation is going to be a little bit more advanced than some prior episodes, but I think you're going to love it because we're going to hear Georgia and James disagree, but we're also going to hear a great example of how to listen to your partner when you're not on the same page. We spent this conversation talking about diversification and risk and investments because it is critical. And these are the type of questions that will be worth millions of dollars to you over the course of your lifetime. I'm Ramit Sethi, and this is the I Will Teach You To Be Rich podcast. Georgia, what do you wish that James would hear you say when it comes to your money? Um, that we need to assess risk, assess risk more appropriately and decide really mindfully how much risk we're willing to take at any given point in our financial journey. That sounds pretty good. Pretty academic. (laughs) What do you really want him to know? I want him to know that I've always had financial insecurity. I tried really hard to build financial security as a young person. I think I started off on the right path despite having a finance. I had a financial advisor at 21 because I had seen my parents file for bankruptcy, have horrible divorces my stepdad stole my mom's entire retirement fund. And I was like, that's not going to happen to me. And then when we got together, a whole series of things happened. And we ended up right there in pretty serious financial insecurity. And I don't want to be there again. And I don't want my kids to have to be there. I guess what I'd like is for her to maybe trust my thought process surrounding it a little bit more. Um, you know, she is very intelligent and has got, you know, a near photographic memory, whereas I kind of do things a lot by my gut. Right. But I feel like I have, you know, listened to a hundred plus hours of podcasts surrounding finance and real estate, um, read a couple books at least, and have got what I think is like a strong intuition for, um, good moves, even if they may be riskier than many people might be comfortable for. So I just wish that maybe she could trust me a little bit more when it comes to those things. How many properties do you own? Uh, we currently own a primary residence and two rental properties, and we're actually about to close on a new primary. So then our current primary will convert to a rental. So you'll have three rentals and one primary. Mm-hmm. What's the total value of all of these houses? One one point eight million total market value remaining. Right. So, has it been a good investment for you? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Ten years ago, we were getting our groceries at the food bank. My mother loaned us uh, just under twenty thousand dollars to put a down payment on our first house, um, which at that point we assumed would just be the house that we always lived in. Um, you know, we. That house is worth twice that now. And, um, you know, after, after living in that home for a few years, um, you know, we, we saw what was happening and just like, my God, like the equity in this home is going so fast. Like this could be a really good investment for us. And, you know, um, through some luck and some, you know, kind of out of the box, well, not out of the box things. I, I thought it was such a great idea that I actually emptied out my stock portfolio and my 401k in order to buy our second property. Um, you know, and it had also has done really well for us. So 
Yeah, but it was like certainly by luck. We would not maybe have been able to buy a house at all had that not happened. And certainly would not have been able to buy the second or third one if we hadn't seen the value there. You were getting food from the food bank 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. She offered you this money, which has dramatically changed the trajectory of your lives. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And you're here today. You have three rentals, one primary house. Uh, portfolio of around $2 million. How old are you both? I'm 36. 41. Okay. So from the way that both of you talk, I can tell that you've run your numbers. Mm -hmm. And I can also tell that you acknowledge you had a lot of luck involved. You had help with the down payment. Uh, You were in a hot area. So despite being as savvy as you are, you also know that It's not a sure thing. It's not just like plug the numbers in and it's magic money. Notice that they acknowledge their hard work, but they also acknowledge luck. I find that the most successful people are very, very open in acknowledging how their success is due, yes, to their hard work, but also due to luck. That luck could be being born in a certain country, being born to loving parents, or someone taking a chance on them even writing them a check. I believe that a rich life is never built alone. And so I'm glad to hear Georgia and James acknowledge that. I think it's a really positive sign for the rest of our conversation. What is the percentage of your portfolio that is in real estate right now? Like 98%. I'd say something like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. almost everything. There's, it's a handful mm-hmm. of dollars not in, in real estate. And that's what I mean when I say I feel really exposed. Okay. So these three rentals and one primary, are they also in the same city? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's good. All right. Mm -hmm. All within just a couple miles of each other. So you have 90 plus percent of your portfolio in one asset class in the same location. Let's talk diversification for a second. First of all, I was trying to make a joke when I said, that's good because it's really not good. Unfortunately, my joke bombed. Listen, having multiple properties in one location is not diversified. Now, certainly better than having 98% of your net worth in one property, which is actually how most people think about their primary residence. But if you are a real estate investor like Georgia and James, and if you own multiple properties in the same city, you've exposed yourself to risk. Think about it. What if your city suffers a natural disaster? You won't just lose one property. You might lose them all. Or what if the city simply becomes uncool and people flee and it becomes this downward spiral? Well, this has happened to several famous cities in just the last 10 years. Again, you wouldn't just lose money on one property. You could lose a huge percentage of your net worth. I'm sharing this because beginners focus on questions like $3 lattes and target runs. But advanced investors focus on questions about asset allocation and diversification. They elevate their focus to these really big questions. Right now, Georgia and James are overweighted in one asset class, real estate, and they are under-diversified in their location. This is a problem, and Georgia recognizes the risk they're in. It is very smart to raise the red flag and make changes before something bad happens. The intention is to balance our, the diversification of our investments. There's 
sort of a pattern of behavior in our relationship where I'll say something and his sort of knee-jerk reaction is to disagree with it. And then I'm automatically defensive and it, it erodes trust. Um, the first probably three or four times that I suggested that we sit down and look at what it would look like to sell a property and convert that equity into index funds, the automatic response was, uh, I don't think so. Or mm, I'm not sure about that, which in his language means no, or I don't want to look at it, or I'm not going to give you the time of day to analyze this with you. I still am just not clear on when it comes to the type of investments that um, Georgia feels really comfortable with, like index funds or Roths, and how they're affected by market changes and how much control you can have over where those investments are actually put. If we were to sell a property and profit $300,000, could we actually turn around and buy two more homes with that, which in turn would snowball into the same thing and provide us potentially far greater returns than putting that $300,000 into into an index fund would? And Mm -hmm. I just want to make sure that we go down that path also to see, is it the right Mm-hmm. thing it's that bold you know move that we we want to make to make sure that we actually are able to enjoy the the money that we're going to be hopefully making in the next decade or so 98% is a very high number to have in one asset class i also want to point something out people will often use nice sounding words to cover up huge psychological blind spots for example they'll say i'm not cheap i'm just selective Here, James says he wants to be bold, which is really code for he wants to pile on risk, probably unnecessarily. You know, I remember my trainer once telling me that at a certain point, you don't need to keep adding on weight for your squat. And he said, unless you're competing or you have a very specific reason, there's a point where the risk outweighs the benefits. And what that really opened my eyes to is that more risk is not always good. That's something to remember in life, in lifting, and certainly with your money. If you are just getting started with investing, stacking on risk like this is definitely not the strategy I would recommend. You want to start off simple, and then you can add on complexity as you are ready for it. If you want to know how to do that with your money, you can get my ultimate guide to personal finance for free at iwt.com slash episode 59. If you ever follow me on Instagram, sometimes you'll see me post about my behind-the-scenes travel experiences, coffee tours, salsa-making classes in Mexico, all kinds of culinary stuff in India. And I'll get a lot of people saying, where do I find that Kyoto notepad maker that you found? And one place you can find that is Viator. In fact, my wife and I used Viator to book a Segway tour where we took a tour of a new city and we had an amazing experience, something we never would have thought of doing on our own. They offer everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. And with over 300,000 bookable experiences in 190 countries, there's something for everybody. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real travel reviews, so you have the information you need to book the best travel activities for your trip. When you book a travel experience with Viator, there's always flexibility and support with free cancellation, payment options, and 24-7 service. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 
for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. A few years ago, I was at a tea tasting in New York with one of my buddies. I thought it was going to be a normal tea tasting. Suddenly, six people from Japan come in. They pour basically three thimblefuls of tea and we taste it. I've never tasted anything like that. And they tell us if we were to buy that, just the three thimblefuls, it would be $75. Now, drop for drop, that's the most expensive thing I've ever had to drink. Not all of us have the time or the money to buy that specific tea from that specific mountainside in Japan. But what if you could capture that feeling of the care and the love, even the way that they served it to us? What if you could bring that to your home every morning? Well, I want to introduce you to one of our newest sponsors, Peak Tea. What makes Peak Tea special is that the tea is cold extracted using only wild harvested leaves from 250-year-old tea leaves. That makes the tea rich in minerals and other beneficial compounds. Now, the greatest part is that Peak Tea is zero prep. There's no tea bag that you have to steep for the perfect amount of time. Peak dissolves in cold or hot water in seconds. It's already pre-measured, it's perfectly brewed, and it's perfect to take if you travel. My team's been trying Peak Tea, and they especially love the Pu'er Green Teas. For a limited time, get up to 15% off and a free quiver with 12 tea samples with my link, peaklife.com slash Ramit. That's P-I-Q-U-E-L-I-F-E dot com slash Ramit, R-A-M-I-T. You could buy more houses. Maybe they would outperform the market. It's possible. Sometimes mm -hmm. it happens. Maybe not. That also happens. But does it fit your investing goals to buy more property? How do you make that decision? I think buying more property over the long term definitely fits both of our investing goals. But I think the thing that I want to make sure is not being forgotten is that we do actually need to diversify. In my mind, regardless of what the market is doing, because of where we're at in our lives right now, it's a perfect time for us to actually do this, to move some chess pieces around and be really intentional about where they're going instead of just like throwing them on the board and they land wherever. If I had to crawl inside his head, I feel like he thinks that sacrificing equity is not the smartest move. Sacrificing equity that has more than outperformed the market by more than double over the last few years. I, I think he thinks it's too big of a sacrifice and he doesn't want to see that potential upside just, you know, squirreled away somewhere. I mean, I don't think right now with the way that interest rates look to be continually going up that like it's even the best time to be purchasing more real estate. So now is like a perfect time for us to take that money we would be saving to maybe buy another property and put it into the index funds or something else. Um, but I do, I, I'm not totally convinced that at least right now, it makes the most sense for us to transition the equity in a property into an index fund. But that's not to say that I also like don't see the value in your comfort level 
being met? When I crunch the numbers on on the specific property that I'm thinking about, there is there's a lot of maintenance for that property right now. Um, it's a lot to keep up with. We obviously do keep up with it. We want to be really good property owners and really good landlords. Um, but with that specific property, selling it and converting it to index funds, when I'm looking at our total portfolio, like that would give us almost a 50-50 balance. Mm-hmm. Like that's a pretty that's a pretty good balance to strike from where we're at now to where I think we would be managing risk better. But I don't know that I can prove it to you. I don't know that there's any way of proving it because I think you said earlier, you like to go off of gut feeling. Like we bring very different perspectives and I would like to strike a balance between the two. And I feel like we're so heavily weighted in almost entirely making decisions around his gut feeling. And I feel like my like analysis, strategic thinking has gone completely to the wayside. And I don't feel like I'm being honored in how we're investing right now. I'm not opposed to making that transition. I think that there is value in doing it, especially for the um the income, the cash flow that is really passive. I just want to be sure that we're timing it in the way that's going to serve us best. And I, you know, I just want to make sure that we're getting a certain level of return on those homes so that it really makes a bang in those index funds. I don't disagree with that. And when you say time it, you mean timing when and how we sell. When and how we sell. And which property? Like, I obviously want you to feel safe and I want you to feel comfortable. You know, I just also want to make sure that we are, we lost so much time at the beginning of our lives that could have been spent doing the things that we're doing now that we're, I'm feeling like we're behind. And if we don't make aggressive and bold plays that we are going to not be able to meet our goals until later in our lives than I would like. I just want to make sure that the aggressive and bold plays are also balanced by thoughtful, calculated, rational moves. Because if we only make aggressive and bold plays, we're exposing ourselves to more risk than is necessary. Mm. And right now we're only making aggressive and bold moves aside from your 401k. I, I hear you. Which, I I, which isn't adequate really. You know, that doesn't even come close to it doesn't. the level of investing we need to be doing. Mm-hmm. That was kind of cool. I really enjoyed watching the two of you talk about that. It sounds like you are in the same universe you're both talking about risk. I mean, it's kind of cool. I, I, I'm, I'm serious. I really enjoyed it. You're both talking about risk. You're mm-hmm. both willing to see the other person's perspective. You know, you ask for clarification. Hey, what do you mean by timing? I thought that mm-hmm. was amazing. Very healthy conversation about money. It's possible you could make more money in real estate. Is making more money 
the goal of your investing strategy? I think the real goal for me is to create um, stability and legacy for our children and to allow Georgia and I to hopefully have more time earlier than we would with money available to us. Okay. To earn that time back. Okay. Georgia, what's your goal? Um, yeah, my goal is to get to a place where we have more time to spend with each other and with our kids where, you know, we don't get to Joe's mom is 66 hat is been re-diagnosed with cancer for the second time in a year and is still having to work. And I don't want to get to that place. Then I have a question for you. You both mentioned time. Mm -hmm. So in the scenario where you sold a property and made 300K, if you were to reinvest that in two properties, would that support your goal of more time or less time? Potentially in the short term, it would give us less time remit because we actively manage those properties. We do as much of the maintenance as our skill level will allow. Um, so in the immediate, it would add on to our current workload. Hopefully what it would do though is reduce the number of years that we'd have to work a normal nine to five you know, would be the goal there. But you're right. In the immediate, it is it adds to the workload. I I feel like, especially in the immediate, less time. Because I know how much time we're already spending on just the communication, the maintenance, everything involved with owning and managing your own properties. Wait a second. Wait a second. How can that be? Because on TikTok, everybody tells me real estate is passive. You fucking lunatics running around telling people real estate is passive. Oh, I just put 3% down and every year I buy three houses and then I use the cash flow to buy three more houses and soon I have 200 properties and it's all passive, free money. And then when I point out, mm, have you considered certain costs such as vacancies, unexpected maintenance, etc.? Oh, you don't need to worry about all that. You just hire a property manager. Just one problem, Chet. Who manages the property manager? And how much does that cost? I started destroying this terrible advice on TikTok. You can find me at ramit.sati. It's fucking good. As anybody knows, there's risk in real estate. We live in a very stable market, a very high value market that we don't foresee going down at any point in time in the future. I mean, Real estate does go up and down. One of our rentals in particular, we've kind of seen like the the value of it sort of wobble, whereas the other ones have basically shot straight up. Um, but I'm getting a little overwhelmed by the maintenance involved. Our property taxes are climbing. I think they're probably going to go up pretty rapidly here in the near future just to help control some of the growth of our market. Um, and... I also know that one of the best ways to manage financial risk in terms of investing is to diversify. And right now we have all of our eggs in one basket and it makes me feel exposed. How much do you think about things going right versus things going wrong, James? 
I think that I <clears throat> majority think about things going right. Yeah. So bold investing, we can squeeze out higher returns from this thing. And if we play our cards right, six years from now, 10 years from now, we're in this amazing position. Right. That sound familiar? That's that's definitely the way I kind of look at it. Is like uh, you know, the way that I think about it often is that the biggest hurdle to making things like this happen is just believing you can and taking the step. Making things like what happen? Building a real estate portfolio that will allow you to retire early or um, you know, accumulating wealth risk in Georgia's eyes definitely is like, it's always there in the back of her mind when we're talking about these type of things. And it's sometimes, this is like where some of the conflict can come in, right? Because I'm like, oh, you know, here's this plan that I've got. Like, it'll be simple, right? We wait three years, we sell a house, we turn it into two. And she's like, yo, like, what about all these other things that could happen along the way. Like you're just manifesting this out of nowhere. Like we need to do homework. And that's part of where some of our inability to, to see things the same way comes in is that she will put some of the, the risk at the forefront. And I very often tend to ignore the risk altogether. It makes me feel entirely responsible for being the person to clean up messes if they happen to plan for them, to try to buffer for them. And it's really hard to plan for managing risk with a partner who doesn't see risk. It sounds like a high emotional burden. Yes. It sounds like a high financial burden. Yes. And it kind of explains why, Georgia, you creating all these spreadsheets doesn't really do anything. Nope, it doesn't do anything. Problem is risk is just a word until it happens to you. Mm -hmm. And suddenly it's not just the word risk anymore, is it? It's bankruptcy, it's recession. It's all of these things you never wanted to be in that position to befall. Mm -hmm. So I just say, let's not even get into that neighborhood at all. I remember I once asked people on Twitter, if you won $20 million, how would you change your investments? Would you become more aggressive or less aggressive? And the majority of people were like, I'd become more aggressive. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? There's a principle you need to understand, which is once you've won the game, you don't need to play anymore. Think about it. If you made $20 million overnight, that can generate roughly $2 million in income per year, approximately. Sure, you could take on extra risk and maybe get to $100 million, but that extra risk might financially destroy you. Why don't you just take your $2 million a year and have a great rest of your life? Sometimes people don't know how to think about risk. What am I talking about? Sometimes. Almost nobody knows how to think about risk. Almost nobody can predict what they will do if they have more money. And most importantly, as you become more wealthy, you have to think much more carefully about risk and about the game that you are actually playing. I have a friend of mine who's always cold. She told me she and her partner 
have totally different temperatures when they sleep. She goes to bed in a flannel pajama. She's got extra blankets. Her partner's running hot. So now she recently started testing the pod cover from 8sleep, one of our sponsors. Before she goes to sleep, she gets on the app, cranks up the heat, and when she gets into bed at night, it's already warm and waiting for her. The pod cover by 8sleep fits on your bed like a fitted sheet, and it collects information. It has sensors. The pod then uses that information to understand what you need to get better sleep. You can set it to heat up or cool down before you get into bed. It also adjusts while you sleep. And you can set it to change temperatures to gently wake you up in the morning. Best part, there are two zones. So if you run hot and your partner runs cold, you can each set your side of the bed to exactly how you want it. Improve the way you sleep by using my link at 8sleep.com slash for $200 off plus free shipping on their high-tech Pod 3 cover. That's 8sleep.com slash E-I-G-H-T sleep.com slash Ramit, R-A-M-I-T, for a better, smarter sleep. I get tons of email every single day, and I want to give you a behind-the-scenes look at how I manage emails from my team, from my family, and from you. I use a piece of software called Superhuman, and this is an email software that I actually pay for out of my own pocket. It works with your existing email service like Gmail or Outlook, And let me share how it saves me over 10 hours a week. So here are a few things I love about it. First off, it splits my inbox into different streams. So my important emails come into one place. It's not cluttered with a bunch of subscriptions everywhere. Next, I use keyboard shortcuts. Unlike you barbarians who literally click and peck through every single email. U to mark it unread. S to star it. J or K to cycle through messages. I use keystrokes to schedule messages. Like when I want to ask one of my coworkers a question but I don't want to send them an email on a Saturday. Now, I can work through dozens of emails in minutes using this. And Superhuman just introduced an AI feature, which allows you to take a huge email with all these people chiming in and automatically summarize what's going on in a few bullet points. It'll even draft emails for you. So if you want to buy back your time, Superhuman is a no-brainer to me. It's something I spend my own money on, and I love it. Right now, all IWT listeners will get a free month of Superhuman. You can get started at superhuman.com slash Ramit. That's superhuman.com slash Ramit, R-A-M-I-T. I don't know that I like right at this moment can tell you yes or no, I completely agree. But I think that like us strategizing and looking at when that right time might be, um, you know, timing comes last. You all seem to be putting timing first. Mm-hmm. Timing is last. Strategy is first. What is our strategy? What do we want to accomplish here? And then how can we do it? And then, and only then, when do we do it? Mm. I don't think you've both agreed on what percentage you want your portfolio to look like. I don't think you've agreed on what type of lifestyle you want. So to the reason that you're both stuck is that you're putting timing first, but timing is minor detail. It's the strategy. Have you both agreed that you want to change your asset allocation in your portfolio? I don't know that you have. Watch this. James, what is your percentage uh, of real estate in your portfolio? Currently, it's 98%. Okay. And what should it be in your view? 
60, 40 real estate, other stuff. Okay. 60, 40. Great. Georgia, what should it be for you? I'd be happy with 50, 50. I think in a more ideal sense. I feel like if our goal is to get closer to a 50, 50 balance, I said 60, 40, you said 50, 50. Maybe we do 45, 55. We can split it some way. Um, um, so we understand that that's the goal, right? We both share that goal. Now we can talk about when do we get there? And, and maybe that helps kind of like lead us both in the same direction. Okay, let's do it right now. You're currently at 98% real estate. You want to get to roughly 55, 45 or so. So how can you get there? What are your options? My gut says, you know, we, we wait three years and allow a little bit more equity to build, a little bit more of the uh, payment, the, the mortgage payments to drop down so that it gives us a really nice chunk that when we do sell, pay the fees, pay the taxes, we're still left with something significant to invest into, a, into an index fund. I think it depends on which property we sold. Right. And how much equity was in it and whether we were selling it as an investment or a primary. Uh-huh. And um, maybe also the price. Yeah. I mean, I'll, three of our houses are like within range of each other in terms of mortgage amount owed on the mortgage and market value, um, except for, I guess, two of them are in range. One of them we have a little more equity in. What if the what if the price goes down? Um, on one of our properties, that's definitely potentially true. I would have a hard time. I mean, I think we took a little dip recently. When I gave you my numbers, our numbers. When I gave you our numbers, um, I went conservative and calculated the even though we just had appraisals done, I gave you numbers that are lower than those appraisals. What growth rate did you assume per year? About five percent. That's pretty high. Our market has been performing at eighteen percent per year over the last seven years. Seven years. Wow, that's pretty good. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. here's a question for you: When a market overperforms or a stock overperforms or a mutual fund, do you expect that to continue or to go down? I expect it to go down, which is why I want to be having this conversation right now. I would be surprised unless, I mean, obviously, you know, it's a very, the world's in turmoil right now. So it's, it's hard to say exactly what might happen, but historically the, the market that we're in has been very stable, even throughout, you know, 2008, 9, 10 was very, very stable. Prices did not go down here in 2008. In my models, I always assume, you know, A, B, and C. And the bad scenario that I assume is like really bad. Mm-hmm. Why? Because you never want to be caught surprised in a bad way. Mm-hmm. Ever. <laughs> never, ever. At least I don't. When I factor in how much things can go up and down, I definitely want to be super conservative. I do. I'm not saying you do. It's your risk profile. But 
if I were in a market that was up 18% a year for five years, uh, one of my scenarios would be negative 10%. Mm-hmm. That's me. So, mm-hmm. you know, you know your market better than I do. You're a multi-property owner. I'm not going to tell you how to run your models, but just to think about what risk can mean, because we often, uh, there's a lot of people who go, yeah, it might level out. You know, I just heard you say that. But what if it actually gets worse than that? Mm-hmm. What does it mean? Because that, if you both decide to wait three years in order to sell the house and then get to 50-50, well, like, what if that stuff doesn't pan out? You've got a cascade of issues here. Damn, I am impressed at how much Georgia knows her numbers. No matter what I point out to her, she's ready with a response. And she's right. Very impressive. I will say, I do disagree with her in one main area. I think she's being overly optimistic with her assumptions. She's assuming that in her bad case scenario, she's going to get 5% annual appreciation. In my opinion, that is way too hopeful. And that single assumption could cost both of them a lot of money, which is why I always like to have a very, very conservative scenario for when things go really wrong. My principle here is I never, ever want to be surprised about money in a bad way. And I certainly never want to end up with my back against the wall. Also, uh, just out of curiosity, does she really want to keep 98% of their portfolio in real estate for three more years? I like companies that find innovative ways to save money, and then they pass those savings along to you. Take Mint Mobile, one of our sponsors. Unlike other wireless companies, they decided to ditch retail stores and all those overhead costs, and they passed those savings along to you. For a limited time, they're passing on even more savings with a new customer offer that cuts all Mint Mobile plans to $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. I had one of my coworkers test out Mint Mobile. She said the service was identical to her existing Verizon account. So if the service is the same, switching to premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month is a no-brainer. Now you'll notice on this show, I recommend to couples ways to cut their fixed costs. If you can dramatically cut your fixed costs on say wireless, that is one way that you can take that money, pay off debt faster, spend it on guilt-free spending, or invest it aggressively. Go to mintmobile.com slash Ramit. That's mintmobile.com slash Ramit. Cut your wireless bill to $15 a month at mintmobile.com slash Ramit. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Let's have a pleasant discussion about some of the worst things in the world. One of them, finding a doctor. First of all, you realize, oh, I got a problem. But you don't know if you need to call a dermatologist or a podiatrist. So you just start calling everybody. Half of them aren't even there. They don't even pick up the phones. Then when you finally get somebody on the phone, you're like, hey, I have this thing. They go, oh, okay, cool. We can see you in July. Then you ask them, are you in network? Half of them aren't. And you're spending three days just making phone calls. What if there was actually a better way to find a doctor? Check out our sponsor, ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. Once you find the doctor you want, you can book them immediately. No more waiting on the phone with a receptionist. And these doctors all have verified reviews from 
actual real patients. We're talking about booking appointments with tens of thousands of top-rated, patient-reviewed, credible doctors and specialists. The typical wait time to see a doctor is between 24 to 72 hours. You can even book same-day appointments. If I needed to book a doctor and I wanted it to be convenient and I wasn't sure where to start, I would try ZocDoc. So go to ZocDoc.com slash Ramit and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C.com slash Ramit. ZocDoc.com slash Ramit. Do you want to wait three years in order to rebalance your portfolio? Um, not necessarily because I also know what this, what the stock market is doing right now. And I know people are like panicking, but I think right now is a really, really good time to be buying into the stock market because we have more purchase power right now. Mm-hmm. How come you guys talk so much about timing? Have you ever heard the phrase, don't time the market? Yes. Has anyone here <laughs> ever heard that phrase? Yeah. We spent the last one hour talking about timing shit. <laughs> What the hell is going on right now? <laughs> I think it's yeah. a decoy. I think it's a decoy for us. What does that mean? I think it's a way for us to not have to come to an agreement right in this moment. Exactly. And truthfully, it's not just mathematical. It's not just because of the research that I know on timing the market. It's emotional. Because yeah. Georgia, you've told me you don't feel safe mm-hmm. and you've had bankruptcies in the family. Mm-hmm. And so I don't really believe that you would be emotionally willing to wait three years to rebalance a 98% weighted portfolio. That, that seems mm-hmm. crazy to me. Am I reading this situation wrong? No. Can I just point out that there's a very obvious principle here. It's the same as crypto guys who were going around telling everyone, oh my God, this is so genius, while it was going up two, three, four thousand percent, which is quite amazing. A seasoned investor looks at that and says, there's no way that can continue mm-hmm. ever. So mm-hmm. it's awesome. You happen to ride on a rocket ship. That's amazing. You should decide on your own risk profile. And do you want to take chips off the table? But any seasoned investor looks at things like that and says, it can't last. You know, I talk to a lot of crypto people. Well, I don't talk to them. I talk at them because they mostly just insult me. Although to be fair, I am making fun of them 99% of the time. So I had a recent hilarious interaction on Twitter. I posted some comment many, many months ago. And here's the thing. You know, I love making jokes about horrible investors, but I also love being vindictive with a fully automated system. So I posted this thing and this guy wrote a tweet saying, remind me three months. I said, I'm glad you're setting that note up. I set a note for myself to check in on this about six months later. Okay. This is the problem when you love logistics and you have a vindictive streak. <laughs> so, in the time that this tweet, he posted it, Bitcoin went down 35%. Mm-hmm. Now, I got my reminder popped up to me. I'm sitting there in the morning drinking my coffee. I see this reminder. I said, ah, oh, this is going to be good. I clicked the link. He deleted his tweet. Of course. Of course. Because when things are good, everybody talks about it. And when things go bad, what happens? You save face. (laughs) They all disappear. Fucking crypto speculators. It's basically MLM for men. Astrology 
for people who think they're too smart for astrology. Every one of their reasons for things like Bitcoin to exist has been dashed. So what do they do? Let's just name them. It's not a stable currency. It's actually been outperformed by cash in recent months. They recently discovered that 50% of trades on exchanges have been shown to be fake. It's actually more centralized than fiat currency. And shall I continue? I can. So what happens when yet another data point shows crypto going down? They simply vanish. Notice these guys on Twitter who used to post 30 times a day about Bitcoin. Suddenly, they change their avatars. They no longer have those bright, shiny lights in their eyes. And they've become very somber economic commentators who are suddenly very concerned about inflation. People love to brag when they're up. But when their investments go down, they get quiet. And the more they go down, the more people retreat. Like a little animal burrowing away and hiding from the sunlight. Good riddance. Also, I'm going to post screenshots of this guy on my Twitter account soon. Yeah. They vanish. <laughs> it's classic survivorship bias. You only hear from the winners. Yeah. And I want to point that out because real estate has been on an incredible historic tear. And it's fantastic. If you happen to own properties, you have mm -hmm. fantastic returns. As mm -hmm. a seasoned investor, you might look at that and say, oh, okay, something is not right here or it can't last. Mm -hmm. And then you start to say, okay, well, what are we going to do about it? And for some people, they're a little overweighted in real estate. They go, ah, my normal allocation is 35%. I happen to be 50%. It's a little mm -hmm. higher than I'd want, but that's fine. You know? Mm -hmm. But anyone looking at 98% in one asset class in one city says, oh, that's amazing when it's working right. Mm -hmm. But when it stops, it's like a ton of bricks that hits you. And I believe both of your parents went through bankruptcies, correct? Yeah. Yes. James's mom is facing medical bankruptcy again right now. But we never want to let you both get in a position where you're exposed to that much risk. Because if it goes wrong for you, it goes wrong all at once. Yep. That's exactly what I'm worried about. In investing, your asset allocation is more important than any individual investment. It's really important to remember. So if you're writing a book, it's the table of contents that matters more than any individual page. I would actually like to make a date with James to sit down and look at our recent appraisals, look at the exact dollars and cents of what we owe look at neighborhood performance for the properties that we own, the amount of equity in them, and come up with a strategy. What are our next three steps to get our portfolio rebalanced? And what are the tools we need to get there? I believe I see the value here. I do. I think that um, I, I don't want to stop pursuing investing in real estate, especially because I think that we understand how to do it in a, in a great way. But I definitely think that reallocating some of our current investments into something more stable and more passive is probably the right move for us. You know, the crazy thing, it's not like you're taking the money from a house and putting it in cash to just sit there. You know, index funds make a lot of money. Do you all mm -hmm. know that? Yes. <laughs> yes. 
And oh. it's not dumping $500 a month starting from zero is not the same thing as starting from $300,000 and then continuing to add to it. I've, I've, I've crunched the numbers, you know? That's why I think it's really important to utilize the tools that we've created together to rebalance and diversify our portfolio. We have a huge opportunity to be very strategic about how we move forward. And I am worried about watching this opportunity go by us and then running into some crazy risk. Mm-hmm. And that's a very real possibility that I I feel like I'm the only one that's taking it seriously in our relationship. James? <clears throat> I mean, yeah, that's fair. That's a fair assessment, I think. Um, you know, I don't look at risk the same way that you do. Um, but I think that I'm absolutely willing to have a date with you and strategize on which of our properties makes the most sense to move forward with the converting into index funds. I think that I think that that makes sense um, for for a lot of reasons. I think part of the thing that's holding us up is that you know it's not like we're you know these incredible real estate investors. Like I think we still see ourselves as very green, even in that type of investing. But we know what we're doing. We know how to. We know how to do that. We don't even know how to buy index funds. I don't know how, I know what they can do. I've crunched the numbers. I've used your calculator, but I don't know the steps from here to there. And I think that that's also part of what's holding us up because we can't, we can't lay those bricks together. You know, I don't know that I see any reason from what I've heard about index funds that we would want to choose a Roth over an index fund. So maybe we do index Uh-oh. funds. Real Georgia's estate. about to really, she's literally biting her lip right now. To not speak <laughs> Go no, ahead, Georgia. Just, Clarify the difference for all of us, please. No, we were talking about this earlier. I was just going to ask James, is that a question you want to ask Remy while we're here? Because um, I'd love to understand. I don't know why we do it. Because if index funds have a average 10% return, that seems far beyond what a Roth would generally give you. So why would you put your money in a Roth? Okay, this is a good question for a lot of people to understand. So imagine a house. A Roth is a room in a house. But within that room, you have to choose what type of uh, bed you're going to get. The room is the Roth. The bed is the investment. Mm -hmm. So you invest in an index fund within a Roth. Mm -hmm. You also can invest in an index fund within a 401k. And then, Mm -hmm. because the two of you are going to have so much money eventually, you can invest in an index fund in just a normal taxable account, not Mm -hmm. a tax-advantaged account like a Roth IRA or a 401k. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's what I've struggled to illustrate is the, the strategy behind utilizing those accounts for the advantages that they were built for. In the beginning, it doesn't seem like that much. You know, we're compounding on 5,000 or 
15,000, but those numbers grow really fast. And once they start to grow with your cash flow, which could be quite rapid, especially if you start with 300K, you start to go, oh my God, Mm -hmm. we made more in this account in a year than we made working all year. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point, depending on how aggressively you invest, you might make more in a month than you make in your entire joint income in a year. I just want to point out that if you took that $300,000, just for simple math, and y'all continue to add $10,000 a year, which is not that much for you. Mm -hmm. And with 20 years to grow, you'd have $1.6 million from just that Mm -hmm. money. Mm -hmm. But at 25 years, it's 2.3 million. It starts to grow really fast, Mm -hmm. really fast. And, And that is income. By the way, that can be turned into income at any point you want. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We've talked about this. We've looked at this calculator together yeah. and talked about the exponential growth pattern mm-hmm. of compounded tri- in, compounded interest. It's um, staggering. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's the math itself for the two of you is quite simple because you understand compounding. Actually, let me not make that assumption. George, I know mm-hmm. you understand compounding. James, do you mm-hmm. understand these concepts of compounding? I do. Yes, I do understand the concept. Um, you know, when we get into this conversation, I like to just say, well, real estate does the same thing, but it, it is riskier. But yeah, I mean, I do understand um, how it works. Essentially, it's, it's, it's a certain interest rate or rate of return every year. The interest that was gained goes to the principal and it happens again and again. So it's it's, you know... Essentially, that's it, right? Yeah, it's it's just yeah. it's growing upon itself. Good. Yeah. Um, real estate does sort of work the same, although it's a totally different asset class with a different risk profile. And also, you know, one of the reasons that I am critical of real estate, although I don't mind it, is that we all forget to factor in the costs. So, for example, if we were doing a true accounting, are you all factoring in how much your hourly rate would be for your maintenance? Not at all. Yeah. No. If you did that, nope. your returns would change dramatically. But okay, you know, we don't have, that's fine. But all the little things that you now know as property owners and when you sell and all those transaction costs and if you back them all out, you go, okay, we made we made a lot of money and however, if we weren't so lucky to be at that time or that place, we wouldn't have. So was it skill? Was it luck? Also, could we have essentially made the same amount of money, maybe a little more, maybe a little less, by just putting it in an index fund and never having to think about it again? No driving to Home Depot, no doing this, no calls. Mm -hmm. So James said, okay, I can see the benefit of diversifying and reallocating. Uh, Did you hear that, Georgia? Mm -hmm. Okay, she's nodding. And James, when you say you, you understand the value Now talk us through how will you get there? Yeah, I mean, I think that the best thing we could do is is get our spreadsheets out, look at our properties, what is making us a a monthly cash return, what's got the most maintenance cost, what we think we could get for um, each one and make a decision on which one of them makes the most sense to sell and, and reinvest. I think is how we would do it, you know? And so I think over dinner and a laptop, a glass of wine for me, (laughs) 
you know, we, uh, we, we take a look at this and just come to an agreement on, on what that next step is. And I think that, um, kind of just like understanding the risk involved with all of our assets being in the same asset class. It, it, I get it. I understand why you want to diversify and that the the risk is more than um, you're comfortable with and potentially more than is wise. Georgia? That's great. All right. It sounds like a good plan. The two of you talking about it and saying like, what's our plan? Of course, we can revisit our plan every year. We can always change it. No big deal. But like, let's make a plan and then everything just flows from that plan. That is how I like to run the business and the personal and all of it. Making the plan actually sounds like fun, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That appeals to me a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I received a follow-up letter from both Georgia and James. You can get the full follow-up at iwt.com slash follow-ups. But let me give you a quick excerpt from what James wrote. He says, the thing that really stuck with me was when you said timing should be the last step in our conversation and that the reason the principles and the plan should be the primary driver. After that, timing is simply execution of the plan. This really seemed to strike a chord with me and I began to understand part of fulfilling our vision of the future meant both of us need to feel like we are driving and that one of our ideas does not need to exclude the other. Again, you can get those follow-up letters from my website Let me just tell you what I took away from this episode, which I really, really loved. Georgia and James have both done well for themselves. Part of it, very hard work. Part of it, luck. But regardless of how successful you have been, in fact, the more successful you are, the more you want to think about risk. You never want to have all your eggs in one basket. Certainly not one asset class in one location. They are in a very positive place for where they're going to go with their money. They have an amazing future ahead of them. Now it's time to think about bigger picture. How much risk do they want to take? What type of lifestyle do they want to lead? And how can they both get educated about money so they understand all of their options? That ultimately is what I want for you. I want you to be educated so you make the right choices and live your rich life. Thanks for listening to I Will Teach You To Be Rich. I'm Ramit Sethi. Please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you haven't read I Will Teach You To Be Rich, my book, pick up a copy. You can get it at any bookstore or any library, and it will show you the specific tactics for how to build the I Will Teach You To Be Rich system into your personal finances.